Hi, if I could take a moment of your time before we start, if you've enjoyed previous episodes or if you enjoy this episode, if you could subscribe on the platform that you listen to, that would be really helpful. It helps us get more guests and push the podcast forward. Thanks. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Car Chat Podcast. I'm Sam Moores. And with me today, I have Mick Pacey. Hello. Hi, Sam. How are you? <laughs> very good. Very good. Uh, can you tell the audience a little sort of short summary of who you are and what you do? Okay. Um, um, where we are. Cool. Well, I'm owner of Export 56. Um, we're predominantly classic Porsche specialists. Uh, been around for a long while. Can't, can't remember quite how long, but um, <laughs> seems forever. Uh, <clears throat> so, um, yeah, established ourselves about, I think, about 30 years ago, um, based in Cranfield. And we primarily look after sort of pre-75 cars going sort of back, I suppose the earliest we deal with is sort of the early 50 split windows. Um, yeah, about 70 cars on site. Um, and we've, yeah, done variations. But but mainly the stuff that we do is, is you know, kind of factory original stuff, building um, sort of curating collections for for clients um did a lot of racing in the early days uh but found out i wasn't that quick so uh, <laughs> so i left it to the youngest to do that so um and when so where did this this journey begin did have you always worked in in a sort of car dealership type environment or absolutely not so uh, <laughs> um yeah where did it begin probably i'm not from a automotive background, which mm-hmm. is which is interesting, albeit I, like most people, had a huge interest in cars as a kid. Um, I have to confess, um, being born in, well, I was born in Luton in, in kind of nineteen sixty, so my early years <clears throat> uh, were spent ogling uh, beige Vauxhalls. So, nice, um, yeah, uh, and but but really, you know, got obsessed with cars from a very young age and. And it hasn't stopped really. And I, I ended up um, a failed footballer. Ended up going to uh, to art college, um, but but basically pursued money um, 
on the basis that I could buy cars. That was, nice. that was the only yeah. reason I worked. I just, I just worked hard. Um, well, I suppose in Luton, there was a couple of ways of getting cars. Um, one was working hard and buying them. The other was stealing them. And I, I wasn't very good at stealing them. So I thought I've got to go the option of buy, of working hard and buying them. So, um, so yeah, that's, that's basically a, a bit of background. And what, what, where did, where did that take you? Um, what did you end up, what did you start doing? I'm, I'm always embarrassed to, um, I mean, my first car that I was able to afford, well, I didn't, I never bought it. I was given it by my parents was a, was a Hillman Imp. So, um, nice. Real yeah, drive. It was. Yeah. I mean, it started on that journey, but, but, but prior to that, I'd, um, you know, my, my earliest memories was just, uh, li literally going down to a toy shop, you know, that would have been God in the, I don't know, 19, I was 10 in 1970. So, um, a little toy shop and spending hours in there just looking at the models. And, um, I always ended up at the Porsches, uh, but, but never saw a Porsche till I was probably 12 or 13. Um, and then just saw this green thing in the back of a, a, a small garage um, in Leegrave, which, which was the area that I grew up. And it was um, just tucked behind a load of Jensen interceptors and, um, and, and MGs, but this, this sort of lime green 911. And, and that was it, really. And um, I sort of had to have one. So uh, I ended up <clears throat> playing for Luton Town in the, um, you know, signed as a schoolboy, played there for three or four years. Uh, I didn't try very hard. I wasn't very good in the cold. So uh, <laughs> my, my career was never going to last that long. So unceremoniously booted out when I was um, about 19. I had a terrible measly contract payout. And, um, you know, I had the Hillman Imp. Uh, you're never going to look classy going into a football ground as a player in a Hillman Imp. So I used to park it around the corner and walk <laughs> in. But I, I, I'm right, I'm on, the, I'm on the mission to buy a 911, which I just couldn't afford. Um, so I ended up, you know, my first Porsche was a 914. Um, I couldn't even say it was a 9146 and it never worked. And so I was just um, one of those driveway mechanics as most people were back then. So just trying to get it repaired, get it um, on the road so I could probably look cool. It broke down more than it actually broke. What colour was it? It was light ivory, white. Yeah. So, um, well, shades of white. Um, <laughs> so it, it wasn't a, it wasn't the best start in my, my sort of world of, of getting into Porsches. But I then ended up getting into... Um, Going to art college, you know, at school I could do was muck around with cars, play football and draw pictures. So I ended up getting into, um, I went to art college and was there for four years, then got into the advertising, so the marketing industry just by fluke. And then ended up running a couple of agencies and, um, which actually, you know, I have to say when I look back, it paid me well, but I'd always, you know, cunningly skew the automotive accounts to <laughs> my ownership so, um, yeah, so uh, then it allowed me to, to start buying cars. So the obsession probably in the, um, early eighties, it, it was an easy one to fulfill because, you know, cars just weren't that expensive. So, mm. you know, I could go and pretty much buy what I wanted and I, I sort of did. So yeah. Um, and ended up filling driveways full of old Porsches that never worked. So. Any standout favorites from that time? And, and are there things that from then you're like, I should have kept probably all of it. Every like. single one of them. <laughs> um, but, but, you know, I ended up, I mean, my, um, I, w I was married in 94 and um, our first son's disabled and, and uh, it, it led me to, to leave sort of agency world. I'd, I'd been restoring um, and buying lots of Porsches up to that point. And then I was just sort of, I sort of based myself from home for a while and just mm. did some consulting and, and I probably had workshops and I had guys working for me and I was restoring cars and somebody said, why don't you, why don't you 
restore cars or sell them or get into that world. And I said, well, I'm, I'm not from that world. But I ended up doing exactly that and set up Export 56. And um, yeah, and at the time, <clears throat> I said it was it was so simple. There was sort of no internet there or it was just the really early days of the internet and, um, and not many people on it. And, you know, I was buying, I bought an amazing you know, T1A Speedster from the US that cost me, I don't know, it's $15,000, which a pound bought you $2 back then. And and it was wonderful. And I, I brought that car home and I sort of pretty much used that as an everyday car. Um, uh, but we were buying at the time. I I was also, you know, we bought them. Uh, I bought the Max Moritz 2.8 RSR out of Switzerland as well and paid a couple of hundred thousand dollars for that. Uh, sorry, Swiss francs and you know, when I look back, it was that that probably the RSR was the one that I really would have wanted to keep. It was um, the European Hill Climb Championship winning car, very original, um, signal yellow. Uh, it was just beautiful. It hadn't mm. messed around with, and um, but 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 at the time, you know, it was it was it was it, it, it's easy to buy cars now. You could just sit on your phone, and there's just you know you can it, you get a headache after three hours. It's just too much yeah. to buy back then. You had to work a bit harder. I mean, there's no internet. And if there was, it was just in the early days. So it was thumbing through magazines and well, it all sounds very archaic, but but it was it was great fun. You had to put yourself out a bit to go and find stuff. But yeah, there was there wasn't that many people working in the industry. You know, it was um you know, the usual guys that are still around like Auto Farm, you know, yeah. Josh Sadler and um, you know, kind of guys down at um uh Nick, um down at oh Historica, um, people, you know, people like, um, oh gosh, yeah. I mean, in, in the UK, a few dealers, but all not, the sorts, yeah, yeah. But but at the time, we were, um, yeah, it was just just easy to buy stuff. It wasn't very easy to sell it. Not for what what you'd the amount of money that had to be spent on these cars to restore them is no different than it is today. But the end value of the cars back then was just um, was just so low that you. It, it was easy as a younger person to buy cars and enjoy them. For youngsters now, or for anybody trying to get into the classic sort of Porsche market, the entry level is is pretty high. What is the cheapest uh, in older stuff than that? It's all it's all sort of gone, hasn't it? Really? Yeah, I mean, um, but Porsche just built a lot of cars, so you know they're all you know three fifty sixes, nine elevens. There's 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 a lot of them out there. So in terms of, you know, the entry level stuff is as much to restore as the, as the high end stuff. Mm. So if you, you know, you look at things like nine one twos or, you know, kind of bees, you know, which probably on three, five, six model range were the biggest production, you know, BT sixes, BT fives, a lot of them built left hand drive, you know, you can get into them for 50, 60,000 and maybe nine one two is cheaper. Um, but it's sort of where you want to go with that car, you know, because as soon as you, the, the cheaper you go, the more you work you've got to do, do. the more you start unraveling, the more horrors you find. And what, what's effectively happened, I think, in this classic Porsche world is I've seen the cost of parts kind of skyrocket, you know, and um, and, and the cost of poor cars has got very expensive. Um, and, yeah, once you start spending money on them, it's very hard to stop. And it depends where you want to go with it. But, you know, I... I I always don't think there's anything called a cheap Porsche. I think you can buy a cheap one and spend a lot of money and make it a good one, or you can spend a lot of money on a good one um, 
and that's it. They're, they're your two options. So yeah. And I guess if you're if we're looking at sort of the older ones, so was it fifties and sixties that sort of era? If you're buying them in the eighties, they're thirty years old. If you're buying them now, they're significantly older. So even the cars. If you could buy them for what they cost then, they were just significantly younger, so significantly less messed up if they're not a good one. Whereas now, they wind it forward another 20, 30, 40 years. Yeah, hey. yeah absolutely. I mean, I, I, think, um, I think we found that it, it's gone through, the whole thing has gone through cycles. You know, I think, you know, if you start looking at, at the 50s and the 60s stuff, you know, way back when it was, stuff was becoming valuable, I think, in 2009 on. Um, a lot of people were saying, oh, I could buy a car, I could make some heavy investment in it, and it's still going to have a value. You're never going to restore one of these cars, and, well, rarely you, you're going to make money, um, you know, if you want to do it properly. I mean, there are sort of corners to be cut. But, but even into the sort of 80s and 90s, you know, a lot of that younger generation will look at, you know, the 80s and 90s has been a classic period. The investment in some of those cars now is is significantly heavy. I mean, those cars went through a period when they weren't worth anything either. You know, if we look at 964s, you know, if you look at, um, you know, the, the 32s, the 33s, the turbos, they, they all went through a period where you could pick them up for 20, 25 grand or even, you know, 964s. I remember having three or four of them on the driveway and I couldn't sell them for 10 grand. And, <laughs> it, it, and they were effectively um, looked after like a nine or 10,000 pound car. So yeah, people were missing services. People weren't really doing jobs properly. They suffered from rot, you know, they're, you know, they, I know they're galvanized, but they, and they did certain things to protect those cars, but you know, they, they suffered the body shell that was designed back in the sixties and they were, still evolving that body shell into the, you know, the 964 models. So I think, um, you know, you're, you find the odd car that's been looked after, the odd, the odd one that's, you know, had low mileage and full service histories, and those cars are always going to be the premium cars. Um, I mean, even for us, we, we've sort of, we've moved a little bit more away from trying to restore some absolute, we try and <laughs> advise clients to either you know, try and find the rare, if you're going to restore something, find the, the rarest you possibly can. You right. Know, yeah. And then invest the money into that. Um, it, it's not easy because, you know, um, they, they, a lot of those cars have already been done. So you know, there's not a, a wealth of cars to kind of chase. But but even as, as time's moved on, they're still out there. But restoration projects have become expensive. You, you've probably got more of a a chance for the 80s and 90s stuff, getting stuff that doesn't need as much money spending on it is this really early stuff. I mean, the pre-A's and the A's and those early cars at some point were only worth, you know, a thousand quid, you know, and they would have sat on people's gardens for years and years. You know, you don't get that so much in the 80s and 90s stuff. So, um, but I think it, like all of it, it's it, it all has cycles. And I think um, I, I feel like I've been around for quite a while now. So I've seen various <laughs> cycles and I'm always interested to, I love all Porsches, you know, 924. It doesn't matter what the car is. I could be a sucker for any of them. Yeah. And as I've got older and, and really it's only been the last few years where I've obviously been trying to think sensibly about what I'd buy. I mean, I, I own 15 or 16 of my own cars and, um, 
and, and I love them all. You know, some of them aren't really worth much, and some of them are. Um, but yeah, and it it um, I can I can get as much excitement looking at a cool nine two four turbo as I can a five fifty spider. You know, they all have with the right histories and the right styling and the right look. They all they're all cool. But because um, we were walking around, you showed me like a bunch of the the cool stuff you've got here. We walked into one of the rooms where the body shot. And there's a 356. You can give me the more information on that particular 356 because I know diddly squat about them. But it was, we were talking about the, the effort to Come restore on, Sam, one. You, you know exactly what that was. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, yeah, so talk to me a little bit about restoring 356. Wow, okay. This. Okay. Um, yeah. I mean, gosh, they're um, a bit, a bit I, mean, I, I have to say they're, you know, people ask me what, you know, what's my favorite Porsche. And, you know, I always, I, I love new stuff, um, but I always revert back to a 356. I just think um, the, the pure styling and elegance of those cars and the sophistication, I think they were beautifully built for the time that they were built, which wasn't that long after the war. You know, they, they started to build those cars. They were all hand built um, and they're incredibly sophisticated. And I think um, that there's a, a real misconception that, you know, the, the frustration about people thinking they're just uh, a slightly better looking beat um, <laughs> couldn't be further from the truth. They, 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 yes, engines in the back, and yes, we know the connection to a Ferdinand Porsche and the design, but they're incredibly complex cars. I mean, the body shells on them, which are the biggest failing, you, you know, they're um, are absolutely ferociously expensive to build and to build properly. Um, they were built with very relatively thin gauge steel and they're monocoque body shells. So effectively they're just two very complex body shells welded together. And if you get your inner body shell in the wrong place or anything in the wrong, your outer body shell isn't going to fit. <laughs> um, it's not like a DB6 Aston or a DB5 Aston or a Ferrari that, or an E-type Jag where you've got this nice, beautiful body and it's just dropped onto a, a sort of ladder chassis. The, you're you're effectively building um, two body shells, so you've got to couple that with the fact that you know if you're if you're gearing up to restore one and you're building them on on sort of jigs or dollies, you know um, Porsche being Porsche, and they still do it now. They'll, there's a model, and there's just so many derivatives, and and that is exactly what they did with 356s. Huge production run. It, it ran from sort of 48 through to 64. They built 76,000 of them. And then, I mean, I don't know how many, but probably 30 different body shapes, probably more, you know, if, if you take uh, Gumman cars, split windows, pre-A's, A's, B's, C's, break that down into different models, roadsters, speedsters, convertible D, and they're all, they're all different. So when you consider, you are you going to be jigging up to build pre-A bodies um, or are you going to be jigging up to build SC bodies? Because they're both completely different. So, you know, like like most of us, yeah, we might do a pre-A, we might do a speedster, we might do a B. And if you look at, um, if you look, when I look back at a lot of these early videos of the factory, um, they're, they're absolutely amazing to watch. And if you look at the sophisticated tooling they were used, hydraulic jigs to hold the, the front clips in place, the headlights, so, if, you know, and the metal that they were just pressing and building into these cars, you're running down the production line, coming out the end with 
hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people working on these cars every yeah. day. When we say we restore a 356 and everybody else says, oh, we're restoring them better than they came out of the factory. I, I, I question whether any of us are. There's some doing it better than others, some doing it really well, but none of us are restoring 76,000 of these. We don't have thousands of people and everything we're using is brand new. We're also challenged with the fact that a lot of the parts that we, panels that we buy for these cars um, are, are not quite as original. So, and everything's measurement critical. I mean, if you look at a 356, you, the only four removable panels are the two doors, bonnet and the engine lid. And count how many curves and how many straight lines. There's a lot cars. of curves. You get bottom of the door and the bottom of the sill are the only two straight lines. So in your inner shell, if anything's, you, it, it, and again, you have to look at what you're restoring and, you know, how much the end product's worth and how much can you really invest in this? Because, you know, it's, it's not just 356s, Sam. It's, it's like early 911s as well. And, I mean, we run a business here and, and I think any of these old rusty 911s, RSs, 65, you know, two litre cars or, I don't know, we, we're just finishing off an MFI Carrera Targa. Um, and, and, and that was a car that was unloved. It was rotten. The engine hadn't run for 25 years and um, interior was all, it was a mess. So, and if, and I, you know, how much does it cost to restore a car? How much does it cost to restore a car? And it, it's just for us as a, you know, and it, and it will be no different to any of the restorers. We're about two to two and a half thousand man hours to restore one of these cars. And that's not just one man as well. That That's, you know, that needs a team of people. Yeah. And it needs somebody overseeing the project that, that knows the difference between a bonnet on a 74 MFI Carrera Targa and what the bonnets look like in two years' time when they modified all the pressings. And as I mentioned, it doesn't matter if we're building resto mods or not that we build resto mods, but if you're going off piste and building whatever you want, those that level of detail doesn't really matter. You can you can put whatever you want on it. Yeah, as long as everything like aligns, et cetera, and all that sort of stuff. Absolutely. But the 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 the, the, the rare stuff is a real challenge. So if I was to sort of say, look, you know, on any of these cars here, two and a half thousand man hours or two thousand man hours we should be charging a hundred pounds an hour um for for the skill and talent we need i mean i've got a plumber he charges me the thick end of i don't want to offend plumbers but he charges me 70 80 quid and he's got a nice transit van and some tools yeah and i could probably do the work myself but but the skill and knowledge that we have to have in the business to be able to create this stuff is ferocious these guys don't just come in and do five, six, seven, eight hours a day and go home. They've got to go home. They've got to improve their knowledge of these cars and their skill sets for us to be able to deliver a product at the end of it. So if you take those 2,000 man hours and multiply them by an hourly rate, add VAT, stick 50 to 100,000 pounds worth of parts in there, um, put a charge in for a project manager, these these restorations should be coming out at 400 to 500,000 pounds. Yeah. Now, if you told anybody you'd be charging them 500 grand to restore their 356, they'd just laugh at you. So wh wherever we are with these cars, there's, there's an, a real element of compromise in terms of what we do as a business. And um, and so 356 is, you know, the, I mean, that was the first question that you asked as, as to how, you know, that we go about in the process and the complexities. We're really challenged all the way through that journey with these cars. And then the earlier we go, um, the harder it is to find parts. Um, those parts, 
over the past 15 years have absolutely rocketed in price as well. So if we can't find original and we're trying to find some original date stamp 53 wheels, 15 years ago, I could have bought a few, uh, a matching set for a couple of hundred dollars. Now we're into six or 7,000. And and who has these parts and where, where can you order from now? <laughs> Obviously, if you were like, well, I, the I knew where they all were, that'd be great. But And that's the other thing we're challenged with because you're, um, you're having to, you know, kind of scour uh, your, your contacts. I mean, I mean, we've been around long enough to to have good contacts around the world, and we share knowledge, and we, you know, we we can source parts. But it, it has become difficult. Yes, we we have this push, and there has been a lot of reproduction parts produced. Um, but you know, th- th- some of that stuff is good some of it's not very good and some of it's a bit in the middle and um so you if if you end up i mean we were offered a a 64 901 a short while ago um it was an x-race car it was stripped out it was a shell it was there was sort of nothing else with it and and it was a it was a project we didn't want to take because i'd i'd probably spend more time trying to find all the right parts for it right um than we would do restoring it so you know, gauges and seats and bits of trim. And yeah, I mean, there's just so many things that you need. And if you say to someone, it's, um, I'm sorry, but there's another hundred grand on, in time looking for parts, they're like, mm. <laughs> absolutely. Um, and, and that you're absolutely right. Cause we do, um, it, it, I mean, weirdly, I, I don't even think this, um, these businesses make a lot of sense, you know, kind of. Yeah, it's, it doesn't sound like they do. <laughs> <laughs> it's a weird world we're in, and that, and that's, but that's the world that we all love. And there, there just seems to be. Um, I, 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 every year for probably the last twenty years, I keep thinking that oh, the market's going to slow down. There's, you know, is is this going to carry on? And it and it and it is. There, there's more people wanting these cars. There's more people, and it's great that people are and. Um, yeah, I, mean, I, I think it's a wonderful world to be in, if not very strange. But, you know, kind of we, we're lucky that we've built um, a good client base that supports us and we're able to work on these cars because it, um, it is a challenge. And, and it's a journey that, you know, the weirdly the owners have to come on as well. I mean, it's very difficult if you kind of get the wrong car um, or you get the client who isn't very understanding and and you know, it's just like, you know, well, I'm, you know, they could be, it's a challenging journey that we all have to go on. And, and at the end of the day, if, if, you know, if the client doesn't really want to go on that journey or the car that he's bringing to us, isn't the right car to be doing, we've got to be honest with them and just say that, you know, you kind of, you know, that 911 that you want to restore, you know, is, that's a big investment on a car that really has a, you know, a, a low end value yeah because we know through Porsche and a straight ceiling like it's never going to go yeah. well like a little bit but. absolutely so um yeah but that that isn't just the only part of the business that we do we you know we're we're eventing we're taking cars around the world with clients we're you know entering cars into events like Minimelia, etc and um so it's it's really the the restoration bit is always the hardest bit of this sort of this journey for any of us to go on but um but i always said i'd I'm done with my own restoration, but even now I'm looking at other cars to buy to restore, and I'm thinking, what are we doing that for? But the right car will come along, and it's an obsession. Yeah, it has to be not not financially rewarding, but 
if if you've got that you know for us to see something that's that's dead and we've we've gone through that journey with it and then we poke it out the door and it you know and it just makes you smile it, it it's just not it, and it can't be about the financial reward because we don't make that much money yeah. in restoration <laughs> so um but anyway and i guess it, it even that is it's an essential part of the whole business having that as a thing, because if you if someone came to you and said, and you're like, well, we'll run your race car, we'll help you do X, Y, Z, and they're like, okay, well, I bought a car, can you sort it out? You're like, oh no, 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 we don't do that part of it. You're like, it, it's you're absolutely right. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, we we've got one particular client that we've we've um, we've been on a journey with, and we've we've sort of you know, over the last seven years developed a storytelling collection of cars. And um, sort of first of, best of, most original, and but everything with a real story to it. And um, and he, he was very adamant that, I mean, some of these cars we find that aren't all restored and perfect. So, I mean, we just um, purchased the chassis number 5001, which was the first production uh, target. Um, it was a sort of test mule for Porsche um, built at the back end of 65, um, they owned that car through to 67 and then it went across to Wolfsburg to Volkswagen who I mean, I mean I don't know but it's looking like that would have taken it around about the time they were developing the 9146 um, or the 914 Volkswagen Porsche collaboration and there was a lot of things they did on that test mule with a solid roof obviously the target roofs were collapsible but and, and things that they probably would have been identifying at the time were they building a cabriolet? No, they need the Targa. What are we going to do with Volkswagen building a sort of a cheaper mid-engine Porsche that can go out to, with a, it was a fuel crisis at the time. So they were looking at how they could capture a new market with a cheaper car. And then that car sort of spent the rest of its life in, um, in and around Hanover. Uh, and we bought that car into the collection, which needs restoration. It was restored in in about the oh gosh i don't know early 90s but it would have been you know and knowing we were restoring cars back then there wasn't many parts available there was no internet reference it yeah was, it was it was hard to do these cars and the car was restored using you know some of the wrong panels and um i'm not, I'm not criticizing anybody's work it's just it was just a moment in time in, and that's where it was, it was yeah yeah and the car wouldn't have had much value back then so of course we're going to be restoring that car, but obviously the car now moving the clock forward to you know twenty twenty four, an incredibly significantly important car, and um, and you know is brought into the collection of a you know the, the the collection that we built has you know a car that won in class at Targa Florio, and obviously Porsche named the Targa after the successors at Targa Florio, and. Um, the ST is a light ivory car. The 911 Targa was a light ivory car. It tells a great story, and yeah. um, but again, that that's for us. It's it's a it's a beautiful car uh, for us as a business to restore. You know, we've um, you know it's it's. I'm not saying that we can always restore those historically important cars, but um, but but that's an example of something that. And we've got the Magnus Walker um, pre-production car here um, that we bought from Magnus about three years ago which needs restoration. Um, and again, chassis 174, very complete car. It's, you know, Magnus owned it for 10 years. Uh, I think it only had two owners prior to that. But again, 100% complete car, but but needs full restoration. But it is a um, yeah, beautiful color combination, slate gray over red, which um, 
you know, all the pre-production cars with 356 colours, which were all right. you know, from that colour palette. And and so that, you know, that, that level of car, you know, we're talking about a, a pre-production 64 car. We're talking about a, in the first, you know, 911 Targa. If if we had a you know a, a left hand drive sixty six nine one two that was in similar condition, in terms of labour time, you know you'd be talking about the same amount of investment to produce a beautiful yeah. car at the end of it. So um, so that that's where you're challenged with these Porsches um, in terms of making any sense of, of restoration. And what's I guess this this could go any higher, but what, what's the spread? Like if you're sort of getting into an older classic car, let's say someone like myself, it's like, okay, I want to buy an older 911, but ideally I want something that's like a bit rare. Now, when we walk around here, there's stuff that's like, oh no, that's legitly really rare. Like, oh, that was the Geneva 901, like first one. Okay, right, okay, yeah. But like, what's the spread in ignoring whether you're going to have to restore it? I guess it's sort of part of it, but from what a car with zero sort of extra value versus a car with chunky extra value where do, where does that go from <laughs> to um in a, let's say a 911 okay so i mean are, you, are we talking um you know into sort of the sort of mid to late 70s stuff that yeah let's say that sort of time i'd i'd say um yeah any of these sort of I mean, what what happened was the, the the. I think what happened when I when I look back at it, it was it was the seventy three RS Carrera, um, for some reason just took off, and we know why it took off. It's a brilliant car. It, it just took off around about ooh, about two thousand and eight two thousand nine. I mean, prior to that, we'd 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 probably had about. Eight nine two seven RSs that we were either restoring or selling, and and they were you know, 25, 30, 35 grand. They'd all been, a lot of them been raced, a lot of them been rusty, but, but the two seven RSs almost came alive and the values of those jumped really quickly. And that then pulled up, you know, everyone was ignoring sort of the two litre cars in the 912s. Everyone was yeah. ignoring the first sort of impact bumper stuff, you know, right up to this late 80s. All of that got ignored. It was just, everybody went mad overnight on the two seven RS. And they went from 35 to 50, 60, 60 to 120, 120 to 250, 250 to half million, and really quickly. And all that did was just drag everything up with it. Okay, so um, so everything sort of moved up around that area. But 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 I do think for um, you know, the if you wanted to get into like a, a sort of a two liter car, um, all carburetted and slightly. A slightly different experience to an injection car, um, and I think those injection cars of you know the two twos, the two fours, have all moved up a wee bit. Um, and they, they're all sort of holding their values now. Some are sort of falling back a little bit, um, and then probably what was happening three, four years after the two sevens went mad is everybody was going, God, I've got to get out of my impact bumper stuff because these are going to be worth nothing and. 964s, again, as we said before, you know, they they didn't have a value, much of a value. But I think now the um there's always an interesting sweet spot I see in um the ev evolution of these Porsches where yeah. 
if you wanted to try and buy sort of low production numbered cars, which are always worth trying to focus on because they're always going to be the ones that should have a bit more value to them. I really like that period from 73 to 77 um, when Porsche was sort of, you know, the, it was the first iteration of, of the impact bumper models. They weren't building stuff in, you know, big numbers. Uh, the values of those still haven't gone mad. Um, if, if you look at um, the right-hand drive production numbers of those cars, really low. So we're looking at, you know, so MFI Carrera Targas, three-litre three Carreras. I, I just think they're enormously undervalued. I think they, you know, gosh, they built those cars for two years. They're the only car to run on the turbo block. If you look at a, a 70, if you go 70, sort of five to 77, three-litre turbo, I mean, they're on the four-speed boxes, which a lot of people don't get. You're always, to drive them properly, you need to use that turbo as an extra gear all the time. But, you know, people will drive off pretty slowly in first gear and then yeah. into second gear. And before you know it, they're in fourth gear and they do, I've run out of gears and I'm only doing 45 miles an hour. <laughs> and not really experiencing what those those three-litre turbos are about. But the three-litre Carreras, where they only built a few hundred right-hand drive variants, both Targa and both Coupe, are just mated to the 915 gearbox. You know, just, it's a fabulous engine. Um, so the only car to run on that three-litre turbo block, mated to a five-speed low-production numbers, you can still pick a three-litre Carrera up for 50 or 60 grand. Um, I mean, I think they should be, I mean, you've got to be careful again with the one that you buy because 50, 60 grand purchase, you could get into a lot of... Yeah, if you've got to restore, if, it's absolutely. gone. Absolutely. Um, but, but you know, there's cars out there that even at 80, 90 grand have been, um, have been well looked after. Um, I mean, getting into stuff for 20, you know, it's just, I, I just don't know is that... You're in sort like 996s and stuff. Like, absolutely. You, you're into, again, you're into you know, 914s, 996s, you know, you're into the, the 92, it takes you into other Porsche worlds, not 911. So it's, it's a, it's a dangerous world, but I think one where, I mean, I, I, I remember buying, um, oh, I got offered um, a 75 three litre Carrera Targa. It was Continental Orange. It was the uh, motor show car that Porsche had on their stand. Um, at, 11 grand I was offered it for. I bought the car three times since then and it's sort of gone up to about <laughs> 75, but, but a great car. I mean, it was the only one I think in Ryan driving Continental Orange. Um, a, a fabulous car to own, but at the time I'd, I bought a left-hand drive, sorry, right-hand drive MFI Carrera Targa in light yellow, which I still own. And, and I couldn't really, I had a soft window Targa, two litre S, but I, you know, I had too many cars and too many Targas. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so I sort of parted company with the orange car, but um, I always thought it was a, even at 11 grand, it was just, just drove beautifully. There was a few things that needed, and I bought it back again, I think about three years later for 30 to 35, did a bit more work to it. Um, still a great car, and I brought it back again uh, for about 50. <laughs> and um, it really, yeah, it, I really enjoyed that car, but I thought the... Um, just the the look and the styling and they still if if you're going for that that period they were they were still doing some cool color combinations you know there was some still some larry stuff going on yeah right there. Well, when they got into you know it started getting into the three twos the three liter scs the three three turbos get, getting mass production everything sort of went black red and silver um and white you know they were the four 
um, sort of Ikea colours or yeah. ne next furniture colours. So, and, and I get that, just, just everything just evolves. But I think that, you know, it's a really interesting period where, where the early stuff, you've really got to be into it to want to drive it. Unless you're, you, you know, you resto modding stuff and putting bigger engines. And Whereas I don't think, um, you know, getting, getting something in that, that three litre era with they drive really well um get get the right car um got enough performance if that's what you're happy with and and just as an original spec car um you know i think they they, they offer really good value for money um i said the three liter turbo is all rare in right i mean what would they have built first two years of three liter turbo production they were homologated handfuls of right hand drive i think in that three-year period there's only a few hundred right hand drives built um but but you know unless you can upgrade and put a five speed box in to make them you know a bit more user friendly. Um, but again, it depends a lot on the car. If it's if it's that rare, you'd almost want to keep it original. Mm. Um, but the yeah, anything earlier than that, the carbed cars, you know, they a different you know a different ownership really with a carbed car injection a bit better. But they've all sort of got very expensive, and then into seventy three through to seventy seven. Yeah, that's an interesting era that that probably shouldn't be overlooked. Um, and some of the stuff really, I you know, I think they're still undervalued. I mean, you you'll pay. Gosh, we we had people coming to us, you know, maybe twenty years ago, wanting to pull their RS engines out of their MFI Carrera Targas and sell them separately because they felt that, you know, ten grand their MFI Carrera Targas are never going to be worth anything. <laughs> and it's like, oh my god, now. I mean, but they're still, you know, you get a really good MFI Carrera coupe. You might get two fifty, two seven five for it, whereas an RS would still be double the price. Um, and you know they never produced an MFI. Well, they never produced an RS target. I mean, the MFIs were the first one they built, and only built thirty five right hand drives. So I know everybody historically um, sort of poo pooed the targets. You know, I've always yeah. been a huge fan. I mean, I I always think that um, as a as an open top car. Don't look so cool with the roof on those early cars, but with the roof off, I just think such an iconic, you know, yeah. a Porsche Targa, you know, just amazing. And and with the early stuff that doesn't carry aircon, you know, you, you know, they you know, they run hot air cool cars, and most people are driving these cars in in sort of warm weather now. Not particularly great air circulation, so wind your windows down, and if you've got a sunroof, open that. But that's you know you've got a blower that usually is blowing hot air. Yeah. <laughs> um, whereas a Targa is just like a an open roof car, you know, all year round. So, um, so I think they, you know, they, I think people have worn, especially with a modern audience now, with the new iteration of the Targas, which have become really popular and and look great, and you know, which very much hark back to the styling of those yeah. early cars. So. Um, They've managed to make the look like it's, it's now a very clean shape, whether you have convertible target, whatever, it's like the same silhouette. Whereas as you get older, they get all a bit funky with various convertibles and, and whatnot. When you're, someone comes to you and says, you know, I want to put forward a, to build a collection to do some stuff. Um, how do you, like, like the, the one you were showing me earlier, how do you go about finding in your head? Do you go, oh, okay, we're looking for a a bum 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 bum, and have a bit of a list of like a this is what I've got in my head, or do you go? How do you go about that? 
Are you just waiting to come across the right car and then go, we found it's got to be this one? Yeah, it's, it's, um, it, it's really, we don't have, a, there's no, I haven't, well, me personally, I haven't found a sort of set formula. It, it, it sort of, things ju- just happen to appear, you know, I mean, um, and it's really sometimes quite out of the blue. We can, I can get a phone call on a, you know, on a Sunday afternoon and, and somebody in, in Australia is deciding to part with something. And, um, uh, and it's like, Oh, okay. That sounds really interesting. And, and then I, you know, we, we have a, a good client base and either I'll go along and have a chat with a few of the guys and see, you know, if there's of interest to somebody, I mean, I can usually match the car to, to the owner or, and it might well be that I, I get a call out the blue from somebody looking for something specific that we, we, we have. Um, but I haven't really come across a hard, fast formula. It's just, it's weird. And, and some things just happen out of pure fluke, you know, some things that, that just, I, I, I don't know. It's, 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 I mean, I, I was offered, um, uh, a Raytheon Green 3568 cab that I, you, you saw in the, a, ge- a gentleman called and said, oh, I've, I've got this car and I'm thinking of selling it and would you like to sell it for me? And um, and, and of course it was like, it's a cool car. Um, it it had, a, had a really nice history. It was originally sold into, uh, not a UK car, it was sold into Cooper Motorworks, but anything right-hand drive. I mean, I'm I'm always intrigued with right-hand drive stuff because in the early days, just Porsche built, just hardly any. I mean, there were, the numbers were tiny. So they're always interesting. And I mean, we're a right-hand drive market. And I know everyone, you know, there's a big audience that said, oh, yeah, left-hand drives, there's, there's more people around the world for lefties. And I get that. But, you know, the, the, the numbers of right-hand drives were so tiny. And there's still a big market out there for right-hand drive stuff. I mean, a Speedster's a good example. We've got a, a couple of right-hand drive Speedsters here. And they, 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 they bashed out, well, 4,300 Speedsters over a, over a three or four year period and, and 21 ish right hand drives. So yes, that's a tiny number. <laughs> it's a tiny number. Porsche, yeah. And, um, there will always be a buyer for a right hand drive speedster. But, um, but back to the eight, uh, green car, I mean, I call out the blue, can you help us sell it? And it's like, I'm, I'm sure I can. And, um, I, I did a photo shoot and I posted a couple of pics on our Instagram page. And next thing I've got a, a WhatsApp from a guy in South Africa who um, said, yeah, I love the car and, um, and uh, I'd, I'd like to buy it. And I'm just literally called out the blue and, and um, a wonderful, great. So we, um, so he was, you know, he couldn't come and see the car. Um, but, but obviously, you know, we've been around for a long while and I think we've got a, I mean, anybody's welcome to talk to any of our clients, which are all long-term clients. So, um, but but we ended up agreeing, and we he wanted to do a bit of work before it went out to um, uh, to South Africa, and and during that period, um, I happened to get offered um, a uh, Meissen Blue right hand drive Speedster from Cape Town, which is ironically where this gentleman lives who was buying the um, the yeah. green car. So it's like one of the twenty one cars, you know, great history, been with its last owner for forty three years. So. I then ended up um, buying this car from Cape Town, which my client with the green car went to inspect for me. Okay, look at nice. And, and then, you know, it's, it's, and then the, 
yeah, the cars landed here and, and um, the car, the Horatium Green car is now not going to South Africa because this guy's now emigrated to Australia. So, um, but, but those cars just weirdly just came about through a few phone calls and through a few Instagram posts. And, um, and then we could be on the hunt for something for two years and not find it. And it's, it's just, yeah, it's, it, I mean, it's really interesting because I never quite know uh, as the week comes up. I mean, we don't sell volumes of car. I don't have a sales team here and we haven't got 15 cars for sale. We'll, we, we obviously buy and sell a lot of these cars off market and we, we buy and sell things that the rare things that we could be looking at for, for years before we even come across them. Um, but, but it's, yeah, I, I, I really, I really wish I was more scientific about, <laughs> I'm sure I'm not doing this the right way. I'm sure there are other people going, Oh, I've got a great process and I've got like a system and an app yeah. for that. But we, we don't, it, it, it's just, um, it, it's just a sort of an organic thing that, that kind of grows really. Um, yeah. So yeah. we try and get out to as many, we, we get out to shows around the world. We take cars around the world. We're always talking to people with cars and just conversations. It's amazing what people have got and what they've owned and what they've had and, and they, what they've got tucked away. It's really, and, and I, that that's a really interesting bit. I love the exploration of this stuff and, and delving into, you know, sort of the historical side of the brand. Like you, I'd, I'd started just wanting to go fast, wanting to race and, just wanted to buy stuff. And as time's gone on, you know, I, I sort of realized that, that, that the speed thing wasn't really, you're never going to be the fastest man on the block. You know, there's yeah. just always fast stuff out there. And, um, and then we got more into, you know, really getting into the detail. And then we really started getting into the, the history of Porsche and, um, and that, and that sort of really gets under your skin and just, um, and then the stories of people who own them, in the past and it, it, you become more of a historian, I think, than, I mean, I, I don't know where I'm going off piece there again, but you just get really into the, um, the, 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 the historical importance of, of the brand. Cause I think that's something that always, well, I feel gets overlooked cause I just, I just think with probably Ferdinand Porsche and, and Bugatti must be two of the world's genius engineers, you know, what they managed to do with, from their heads with no reference, um, which is quite astonishing. You know, yeah. it's just, just brilliant. So, um, but yeah. It is, it, it comes across, I, I think oh, I'm trying to, when I first, oh, I first met you and we were at the, is it called the London Concourse? Was that the one? Um, we ended up on a panel together talking about Porsches. Um, but I then saw you at another one concourse of elegance, <laughs> yeah. and you had your ST, the ivory one, um, and you were like, "Oh, do you want to come ha have a look around this car?" And then you started telling me about it, and I think about I don't know half an hour later, we <laughs> got through the end of the, the part of the story, but it really came across about how the history of the cars, and when you come here, and I know that one, you're particularly sort of like building out the the history and all the documentation around it. Like there is so much and it's, it's obviously a, a huge passion of yours and the team here of building that history around cars and, and finding out what's going on. Because like, I guess I would, like that particular car, I walk past it and go, it's kind of a cool old racing Porsche. And then uh, maybe you could tell you a little bit of, of that, the story of that car. Cause 
the more you told me about it, I was like, oh, hang on a minute. Hang on a minute. There is a lot here. Yeah. That is really interesting. Oh God. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, we, we ended up, um, looking for an ST to add to, to the collection. So, um, and they're an interesting car. That was, it was for, um, again, to come into a collection and we've, we've had a couple of works STs that we've bought. I've owned one in the past as well. Again, bought it at the right time, sold it at the wrong time. Um, I'm not, I'm not all bitter and twisted about that, but, um, but I'm not, I mean, it's great that we've, we've had the involvement with them, but this particular car, we, we went to look, um, we were trying to find something that had a, an impeccable history and, and hadn't been sort of restored, which is almost difficult with these cars because the, the race cars back in the seventies had a, a relatively short lifespan and they ended up like, you know, just when they weren't quick after a few years, they, you know, they just ended up getting shelved, you know, yeah. stuck in a unit, everything got, you know, so pulled off them and they ended up becoming nothing really. And, and it was only again, this, this 2008, 2009 period that they, um, the value started to come back in and everything started getting pulled out and, and sort of restored. So, so it's hard to find that stuff that, and of course they were race cars. So they were, they were butchered, you know, I mean, spoilers crashed, you know, uh, different engines, you know, I mean, they had a hard life. So, um, but anyway, we went on the hunt over a couple of years. Um, we went into Europe, looked at two or three and looked at my old car and which I love, but it, it's been restored. It was one of those cars that, um, that, that really when I bought it, it looked like, um, a three liter RSR, um, plastic body kit, original tub, no engine, no gearbox, no, it was just everything was missing from it. It all been authenticated. We bought it from Marco Marinello at 11 parts and, um, brought it back and then went on the journey of building it. Anyway, we ended up, um, coming across a car that I knew of. I didn't realize at the time it was for sale, but we went to see it was with, um, up in, um, it was up North and, uh, was in a garage that, um, the owner had, a an LMP two team or three team. I'm not sure. Um, but, but the car was just in a corner with a box on the roof. Didn't, didn't seem like he felt like he cared too much about this car, Uh, but I took one look at it and then I sort of, you know, we spent an afternoon there and I, I sort of, I was underneath the car, I was scurrying around it. And immediately it was like, wow, this is special. I, I then um, got stuck into a couple of history files and um, I, I very quickly worked out. This is, yeah, this this is quite an important car that just hasn't been messed around with. And and then it was a 71 um, ST. It was um, sort of getting to, well, it, it was a bit of a crossover year with Porsche. Um, they only built six, seven STs in 71. Um, it was the first customer car delivered and it appears to be the first customer car to run on a 2.5 ST engine. Um, and it was sold new into Italy and there it sort of raced and hill climbed. It appeared at Targa Florio twice. And, um, uh, but what it appeared is this car had had a continual race history for five decades. Um, appeared in at the time it looked like about 60 or 70 races, but never had changed in its look. It was painted into red in 70, late 74. Um, but then returned to like Ivory. I spent, a, apparently spent a, a short spell over at the Porsche museum and then went back to Italy to race. So we, you know, the car had its original body shell floors, plexiglass windows. Um, it, it only ever raced on Campagnolas and uh, mini lights had the original, you know, we, mini uh, campagnolas with it mini lights um 
it had its original, as we pulled it out, original matter roll cage, original matter roll cage mounts. Unbelievable. And, and we've been, over the last two years, really getting stuck into the history on it. And we're actually writing a book, document. I mean, there's just too much. We've now got four <laughs> files. And, the, you know, we, we, we found out that the car was delivered to, um, into a gentleman racer in, who uh, ran a Porsche dealership in Rome. And its first appearance was at a San Remo Rally in Italy in 71, which we didn't even know about. We're uncovering all these amazing races and we're actually flying back to Vicenza next week to interview um, uh, three or four of the drivers that um, were racing the car from sort of 75 through to, you know, pretty much the late 90s. Um, Josh Sadler brought the car back into the UK in about 2000. He purchased it from Marco Marinello. Uh, it, it was sold to a gentleman um, called Paul Howells who ran it at Tour Britannia. And he, co uh, Neil Primrose from Travis was his co-driver. So <laughs> right. pretty cool. And I think they, they ended up winning um, the event in uh, 2007. Uh, then to, to Ross Warburton and um, he ran it at Tour Auto. And then we actually took the car back um, last year in October to the Targa Florio. Um, not that it's a race like it was in 73, yeah. but to celebrate its 50th anniversary of its class win. Um, and just to round that sort of 50 years off nicely, um, which will, you know, would be captured in the book. But um, yeah, it was, it was quite, it's, it really is a special car. Does not look dramatic like a lot of those cars, just as a light ivory car. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I'd probably hang my hat on say this is, probably out there with one of the most original works built, you know, race cars of that period. And There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Continuous race history pretty much to date. Like it's kept, kept racing, kept racing, kept racing. Never had a big shunt. Abs, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm expecting, we probably now have uh, photographic evidence of the car racing in probably about a hundred races and hill climbs. Wow. Uh, and I'm scared to death that somebody's going to bring me a picture of the car right around a tree. <laughs> but uh, seriously, but to date, I mean, I'm in mean, hats off. I mean, I, I, I can run through some of these photographs with you and um, we've, we've got footage of the car racing in 72 and 73 at the Targa Florio. But, um, but, but there is not one shot of the car you know, having, you know, lost its front bumper, yeah. um, you know, having, I don't, you know, having hit 
one of the crazy Italians standing on the side of the gravel road you, where it was. You you're know. now at the point where you're paying off photographers. <laughs> like, no, 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 no. That photo, we're going to burn that one. <laughs> it's cost us more than the car's worth. No, no, no. But, but, but no, it really has it's been, um, yeah, just a, a really exciting um, journey with this. And, um, and, I, and I think, I mean, what, what's really amazing is, is it, through its history and especially through the mid seventies, capturing everything that was going on back then. I mean, I've got some stunning pictures of the uh, Zordan and his team and the co-drivers. And um, I mean, just, it, it, it just, it just takes you back to a very different time with these cars. You know, it was, um, you, you, yeah. And, and I haven't really, I haven't experienced that with any of the, 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 the race cars that we've had today. You know, they, they've got histories of course, and um, they've got some great stuff, um, but they sort of, they all went into hibernation for yeah. sort of three decades. And um, yeah, it's this. It's, it's really cool. I'm only really starting to appreciate sort of now when I see photos, I'm going to say sort of in period, but from, from could be 10 years plus ago, whatever. And I'll see an object. And it's, it's one thing about car photos, specifically race photos that kind of annoys me is, is most of them are just the car. They're literally just the car, like framed. You don't see anything else. And now when I see pictures, let's say from 20 years ago, 30 years plus, whatever, ideally I want it a bit zoomed out. And then you see all the other stuff around and then you get a real feeling for like what the environment was like, what people are wearing, like all that sort of situation. Absolutely. I'm in a hundred percent with you. And I, I think where we've, you know, where we've gone, is, and I struggle a bit when we get our, our kind of cars photographed. But, um, and like, e even now we're, there's some brilliant photographers around and everything sort of looks ultra processed and ultra, you know, enhanced. Yeah. And there's an element of, of untruth about it all, you know, where it wasn't back then. It was just, it was really pretty coarse and, and rough. And, but we, yeah, I mean, and, and I really, I'm, I can't help but be involved in that world. You know, we were, we were involved in, you know, kind of through my advertising agency stuff, we were involved in the internet in the early days. So I'm, it, it's a, it's a world that I understand and know, and it, it's happened really quickly, but you know, kind of, um, but, but back then it was, and that's why it's even harder to, and, and so amazing that we've managed to capture and be able to get hold of a lot of this stuff because all you need is one sloppy owner to, throw all this stuff yeah. in a skip and it's gone, you know, it, it, it isn't captured, but you know, I, I really love, and especially this period through the seventies where seven or eight guys working on a car, they've lobbed, um, a, this ST on the back of an old Fiat truck and they're all standing there with vests on and, you know, drinking beers and smoking. And, and it's, you get, there's the mechanic and he mechanic everything in Northern Italy on Porsches for like, and he, he's one of the guys we're meeting and, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's just the, the, it just takes you back to a different period and it's, and it's just so interesting to see all yeah. the, the, the people hanging around and, and, I, and I'll show you some of the pictures of Targa Florio when they were racing. I mean, the world was a, probably, it's a dangerous place now, dangerous place then, but guys just standing on the side of the road, <laughs> yeah. smoking with their kids and the cars hurtling around the corner at 150 mile an hour. And there was no sense of danger for these yeah. people, but I mean, it's. It's it, remarkable to see, and you'll 
you'll never experience it. You can only look at it. Mm. And, um, and that's pretty, that's pretty cool. Where do all the photos, where do you find, because I think you said for that car, you've got sort of three to 400 photos or something, but like, where do you get these photos from? Oh God. Well, we've really spent, um, my son, um, Ben, who really great on all the research side of it and the data. And, um, we call him the Oracle. He, he just knows everything. Um, he really can't tidy up after himself at home <laughs> and will not put the jar back on the pit. That's another story. But I mean, his, his knowledge of this stuff is, is immense. So we've, we've literally been into, I mean, the lovely thing about Italy is it, it sort of it is, is they're real historians over there. Things don't move on okay. too much. So what we've managed, and luckily I think because that car spent four decades or you know, from 70 through to two, though, three decades in Italy. Um, the amount of races it raced at, there was lots of photographers around. So um, so we've managed to just uncover through a lot of the main rally race photographers in Italy. We've been through all the archives. We've, we've just sat on the internet endlessly going through Italian rally sites and over in the US and um, Roy Smith, who's writing the book, uh, Roy Smith's written a number of Porsche books. Um, he wrote the Silver Steeds book, the Porsche 25 Carrera GT book. He's just reading the 9146 GT book. A lot of contact in Italy and a lot of contact with the factory. Yeah, we, we've, you know, we've just really managed to uncover some amazing stuff. And, um, and uh, I mean, literally an email. Um, the other thing that was really good, and it's just by pure fluke, the car was raced out of the Scudera Palladio race club in Vicenza. And it's one of the oldest race clubs in Italy. Um, and the first racing driver owner, Sergio Batoya, who sold it to Calculio Capra, who sold it to Antonio Zordan, who sold it to Pagrasso. These guys all raced out of the same race club. And, and a lot of the old family members and a lot of these race, sadly Capra and Batoya have passed away, but they, they donated a, a lot of their racing stuff to um, a, a motor museum. So, oh, okay. So with all of these guys and, and second and third generation people who've kept a lot of this stuff, we, we've been able to get access to it, nice. which, is, which is remarkable. So, yes, it's been a really exciting project. To um, And every week we're uncovering some more stuff. And it's just, just it, we'll end up with probably four... <laughs> To six huge volumes and that and that's one of the reasons probably for writing a book you know or, or capturing all of it into a book so it is an easier thing to Fair, sort of work yeah. through yeah yeah so that is really cool have you have you do you have a sort of database and storage of now like all sts or have you have you taken on or started any of that sort of stuff yeah, I mean, uh, that's Ben. Uh, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, true. Uh, so, um, yeah, but basically, because we, I mean, this goes back to, you know, you know, most of these, you know, the 904s, the 550s, the Carrera Speedsters, there's all this sort of interesting stuff that's, that's sort of Porsche. And it, and it still happens on the, I mean, we're just in the process of purchasing a, a 993 RS and, you know, Porsche was still doing it, you know, building a 993 and then stacks of derivatives and GT2. And they're all super rare and they've yeah. got a following and they've got, they've got, you know, just getting the database of all of the chassis. And so a big part of what, what we've done over and been lucky 
for us to do over the last 30 years is we've, we've built up a, um, a library of, of historical library of, of all of this stuff, but Porsche are good really. I mean, you know, there's always so much stuff available to somebody in Porsche world. Mm. So, you know, for, for the modern stuff, I mean, it, it databases of stuff everywhere. So it's, it's really, um, it's, it's a brand that is well facilitated. It's got a huge audience there. It, it allows people to, you know, the investment to, to put into books. We just bought a couple of 901 books and, um, you know, because so many people buy these books, you know, there's, it's worthwhile people yeah. researching. So you, you're always well serviced with, um, with research data. We've got, three or four rooms full of books and archive material as well of our own so that we've, we've kept over years. So we hate throwing anything away. So, um, yeah, we're not doing it because we think there's any innate value to it. We just started, I started building all this stuff years and years and years ago. And, um, and it's, it's just become really, really helpful to us because we, you know, we, you know, what's difficult for companies like us is we are, you know, I had a conversation with um the amount of questions we get asked from, you know, we 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 put um you know we put a the early cars the the, the split windows were um at like a crunch gearbox and you got a double clutch they're really they're really tricky yeah and, you know they're not for everybody and and we 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 bought an early car into a collection and um we wanted to put a synchro box in that car so. You know, it's like, oh, okay, well, I know at the end production of those cars in 52, they were going to the synchro box, but that's not going to fit one of the earlier cars than that. So, you know, looking at it, we just probably might have to modify the seat bowl to be able to put a different gearbox in. And I don't want to affect with a gearbox, you know. Yeah. So we're, we're then talking to a client and it was almost like we're expected to know the answer to that, you know. And <laughs> like, it's yeah, like, so what's the solution? Yeah. Like? <laughs> and if you think about what was going on from 1950 to 1978 in Porsche, how many people did Porsche employ? Tens of thousands, I would have thought. And, um, and when you get companies like us, we're, you know, 10 people, you know, we're not probably a couple more that come in part-time. And it's it, for, for us to know every answer um, about everything from a, from a, period of 19 sort of 50 through to 75 is, is impossible we know a lot um and like everybody um and we do this sort of 24 hours a day seven days a week we've done it for years and years and we've got a, a good knowledge but um but but we learn stuff about what we what we're doing with these cars every single day i mean it, yeah. it really is um it, yeah it's it's so interesting to look at how you know how quickly Porsche moved on over a, a period from sort of post-war through to the seventies and where they managed to get to probably on not much money. Um, and, and probably with no, you know, no, no research other than they were groundbreaking all the way through that journey. And it's quite remarkable what they did in such a, um, a short period of time going from a, a, a 51 split window to a, you know, to the 28 RSR and, and, and even then moving right up into what they were doing in the 993s with a sort of last iteration of the air cooled stuff. I mean, that 993 GT2, um, I had one of those here for a while, um, about five or six years ago. What a remarkable car that is. And yeah, it's just, but I mean, you mentioned when you turned up about, you know, driving one of these old cars and 
you drive an old 356 quickly and you drive a new one quickly. You, you just you just know that that's a Porsche, that the characteristics yeah. feel the same about, you know, and it's, um, and, and that there's not, or I don't know any other brand that's, or Mark that's, that's had that history. I don't, you know, it's, um, I imagine it must be, I think like, I think it literally applies to pretty much anything. The more you learn, the more interesting it gets. And then the more nerdy you get, but then the more, there is to learn and then the more interesting so if for example you know a car comes in with a slightly odd something about it that's like hang on a minute does this really get you going when you're like hang on this is the the car with the synchro of which there was only like it must have made like 100 or 50 or 10 or whatever oh that's how they did it like when a car comes in that's like original i guess that that in itself is tricky it it's an original but it's like a tweak on a variation you've seen do you then go right let's take like a thousand photos of this because like we might need this later sadly (laughs) i'd like to say that i'm cool and i don't but no we of course we do yeah yeah yeah. i am i mean i talked to my wife about this and she's really interested (laughs) not um so i have to be um but no you're absolutely right so I think we're, um, yeah, that there's just, I mean, you could pick any bit that, and you go, my God, what do they do that for? You know, you kind of, I think by toolkits, you know, why, why do they make so many different toolkits and, and why are the bags all different? It's like, why the, oh, and you, you know, you could pick any bit of these cars and it's, yeah. you can go on a journey to, you know, really understand everything that they did. And so, um, yeah, but you're absolutely right. We'll, we'll get a car in and it's like, oh my gosh, you know, I didn't even, and even with the ST, to be fair, the, the, the ST that we have here is, um, for all intents and purposes, a, um, you know, a very original car, but there's things that are, are slightly different on it. And it's got its original fiberglass bumpers on there from, you know, kind of came out of the factory. And I'm thinking, well, I've never seen a set of original, you know, bumpers off of a works car before and um and i'm sure there's people out there that have but the things are five mil thick so you know kind of what why the hell are they so thick hardly <laughs> weight saving but i was looking at um i wasn't quite sure whether the the horn grills you know would have left the factory with no horn grill or um or a mesh horn grill or just a standard horn grill on there and and we only uncovered um about a half a dozen of these amazing pics of the car when it right. raced at Sally Remo at uh, Rally San Remo. And it was the first race that ever appeared in and, and we had a close up on the front and it answered the question as to, <laughs> ah, that's what they put on there. And, um, but, but I think again, a lot of the time, you know, you there are stuff that people would have said, I'll stick that on there. And, you know, I don't want that on there. And I mean, they were very, um, in, in that era, uh, Porsche were very, flexible about what they did with cars and also they're trying to get cars out the door to make money so and they're racing and they're uh, evolving and crashing ab- and absolutely so but, but yeah on the on the researchy bits we always you know we always keep thousands of pictures if we can to record what we found and um and on the pre-a that you saw there i mean that's been um again really um or even though we've been around 356s for forever the the pre-A that we've got that we brought out of the US, um, you know, it had a, a, a 
bang on the front and, you know, it had a nasty repair, but it, it looked like it came off the road in the 60s and didn't really do anything sent. But but we, and it was painted like an odd yellow colour, um, but it came with a, an amazing history, like all the handwritten letters from Hoffman Motors. Um, it, it had its original keys and spare keys, uh, original tool kit. The body, it looked like it had never been pulled apart, but it had a, it looked like it hit something on the front and had a little punt on the rear. And so it lost its front and rear bumpers. You know, they did a nasty repair um, on the front, but then it just got shelved. So anyway, we pulled the car down and, and little did we know how good it was, but we've literally, yeah, the car is just as a reference piece for anyone working on Prius. This thing is remarkable. It, it has probably will retain about 95% of its original metal. So we can see everything where they were spot welding, how they were joining, you know, it's even retained all of its, uh, it's, it's door seal um, retainers, which usually will just fall away. Everything falls away on these cars. Mm. There's just not a lot left, but we can see where the, all the original screw holes were. I mean, it's just breathtaking. Um, So that again, just a, thousands of photographs taken just to record um so so it'll assist in sort of future restorations yeah. really so um so yeah it's um ne- we do like a reference picture <laughs> <laughs> oh how am i still married after 30 years as well what's what's my wife doing with me i mean i'm yeah anyway see we, i think we all get selective <laughs> with what we talk about don't we and how they, and they and and like it's part of being a partner with someone is you just sort of when they start nerding out and they're like isn't this really interesting you're like yeah yeah and they pick up that you're not interested and you just carry on and you go okay that that was the step too far (laughs) so um you have an association with shell what was the Uh, what's the what's that been yeah i mean um probably uh i mean in my old um sort of advertising agency days i i sort of worked with uh, shell's brand and i was you know, really aware of um, their history, their uh, relationship with, um, you know, racing, their relationship with Porsche, um, things like the Shell Art Collection. And, um, you know, weirdly, wow, back in, you know, the early 2000s, I, I really was getting, you know, a bit fed up. Um, you know, just, it was a hard slog with these cars um, back then. Um, and and I, I remember... Um, you know, I had a few RSs that I couldn't sell. I had a half a dozen right-hand drive, you know, early two-liter, two-two, 24S project cars that I bought for five, six grand that, you know, even if we would have ever stored them, you could have only sold those cars for 35 grand. And I yeah. thought, this is no way to try and make money. So um, so I ended up um, j- just out of the blue. I live in Newport Pagnell next to um, Aston Martin Works. And I'd seen... Um, an old petrol station in Newport Pagnell, beautiful location. It's out on the banks of the Ouse. And, um, and, and obviously I had a previous relationship with um, Shell and I, I approached them to build um, or to purchase the site so I could actually move export. And maybe around that time, you know, the, the Ace Cafe had come around and Goodwood Revival was just sort of, you know, getting off its feet. Yeah. It was pretty cool. And I'm thinking... There's got to be some opportunity to build a sort of destination site, cafe. I mean, I don't know, do whatever to try and do something, something to generate yeah. some more income 
rather than trying, you know, kind <laughs> yeah. of do this this crazy restoration thing or buying and selling these Porsches that weren't worth a great deal. Um, so having a few conversations with Shell, I ended up being offered the global rights to the heritage brand, which I just said no. I mean, at the time I was at home uh, with, with Toby and Ben and helping look after, bring Toby up. And um, I think the last thing I need is to be going off, flying around the world, yeah. dealing with one of the biggest brands in the world. So it's like, no, I don't want to do this. No, I don't want to do this. And um, gosh, after a year, I did it. Um, I, and what I ended up doing was buying the service station and we we got permission or took a long while to actually get permission to build um, a sort of 12,000 square foot Art Deco garage. During that time, I took the license with Shell. We, we ended up developing um, sort of a load of branding and apparel and, and going overseas and actually building some of these vintage service stations okay. um, in other territories that were really popular. Uh, we, we ended up putting a fueling deal with um, with Lord March um, and in 2008. Well, we went there in 2007, ironically, with Ferrari. Um, I shouldn't <laughs> mention the F, the F word. But but Shell have always had this long-term yeah. technical partnership with, with Ferrari and they were celebrating 60 years of um, of the Shell-Ferrari technical partnership. So we built um, these, these sort of woad corner shell garages. We had a, you know, we built a sort of Ferrari concessionaire. We were racing a 250 in one of the races and really cool. And, and at the time I was racing um, Porsches with Jeff Turrell, who was the uh, marketing director of um, Porsche. And he said, look, you know, we've got, we're celebrating 60 years of um, Porsche in GB next year. So 2008 and we, we really don't have probably have the budget to go to Goodwood and they were just building the experience center at the time. Yeah. And he said, do you reckon you could build those garages and we could rebrand them AFN? And I said, yeah, sure. So we ended up doing another 12 month deal with Lord March. Um, we then rebranded it AFN and, and we had a bunch of cars, Porsches there. And, um, and we raced a pre-A in the, I think it would have been the Ford Water Trophy. I can't remember which race it was, but we raced yeah. a pre-A and, and it was brilliant. It was so cool. And, and we, you know, we, we sort of went off on this, I'm still doing Export 56. So I was sort of, um, you know, at a, at a, we were just doing the odd two or three cars a year and um, keeping my eye in. But we went off on this sort of journey around the world with Shell uh, and it was a ball for about five years. You know, it's fantastic. And, um, and, and, and I watched alongside of that, the values of all of these old cars just start to skyrocket and um, they're all very exciting. And, and you mentioned about running the Gumball and we sponsored... Um, uh, Gumball Rally and were involved in you know all sorts of stuff over at Pebble Beach building these cool service stations sponsoring you know races in period and and it allowed me to um yeah because of Shell's connection with Porsche you know it allowed me to do some cool stuff with some of the Porsches that we were building um and then um what was we, your favorite of those uh, sort of things or, uh, or stand out like memory yeah I, I think um you know, we borrowed the night. Well, I think two things. We borrowed Henry Pierman's 962 Shell Dunlop car, the Hans Stuck Derek Bell car. And um, I think at the time, I, I probably think I could have probably leveraged that car off of Henry um, for, for a decent <laughs> price. But um, but I, got, I borrowed it for an event that we ran in Newport for Shell. And, and I, I needed to get it into one of our showrooms that was up on the high street. And it was just too wide to get in the showroom. So we, yeah. took, we had to take the door frame off <laughs> to get the car in. And there it stayed because we didn't really want to get the door frame. And I was thinking, do I buy it or do I take the door frame off? Um, anyway, took the door frame off, went back. But that was good. But 
But I loved, um, we ran a psychedelic ST in the Gumball Rally, which is a different thing for us to do completely. But, um, but it, yeah, it was really, um, that, that was See, we, a different, exciting thing to yeah, do. We were talking about this earlier. I am pretty sure I was, about that time, you reckon it was about 2015? Uh, yeah, I'm sure it was the uh, 2015, 2016. Somewhere around it there. It was Edinburgh to... Was it Ibiza or somewhere? I no. No, it was... Um, did it start in Edinburgh or did it start in America? No, it started in Edinburgh and went into... Did it go east? Eastern Europe, Europe. went into and we... Ended end in Romania? I think it could have done, but we ended up going into... Um, it came down into London, down Regent Street. We went into Holland, into one of the football stadiums. Oh, uh, yeah. Dead Mouse with this. And we took the car in and did some donuts in the stadium and... I will have photos. I'm going to dig yeah, this out because yeah. I have photos from that okay. stadium. Yeah. And that was really, I mean, um, and I think I mentioned to you, we, we were designing all the clothing apparel and, um, and we had some, we built a service station that we, we put in the middle of Regent street and we had a, a start, a mid and, and an end that parade. Yeah. Just, uh, David Coulthard was there greeting all the cars in and, um, but because we had no time and, we, we designed all these, you know, really cool sort of gumball 50s, 60s shell style yeah. jackets and hats and holders. We ended up, um, we, we could only take cash. That's all we could take. And I think I, I mentioned to you that I thought we, oh, we might do a few grand or something. And 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 come sort of 10, 11 o'clock, all the, everything got dismantled. Everything got taken away. We had some boxes left. I couldn't believe how much of this stuff we'd sold. And, and it was all in all this cash in holdalls and Regent Street and all <laughs> guys coming up and asking us if we've got any spare caps and I'm, you know, just giving away t-shirts and caps, just desperate them not to want the holdalls that had all the money in it. Was, it was like a yeah. weird, um, yeah, it was just a w weird experience, but it was, uh, but that, because it was so different, it was just, yeah, it was just a great thing to do. And um, yeah, yeah, sort of have done an experience. Yeah. yeah. Very cool. So one of your customers was picking up a, um, an ST that's built or a car built to ST spec today. RSR. RSR, 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 yeah, RSR yeah. sorry. Um, and one of the things that, that came up is to now get your FIA papers on an RSR. It does, I don't know whether this applies to any of the others. You have to, they have to really specifically fit a certain year. Yes. Can you just tell me a little bit about that? Because this was quite confusing to me. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what's happened over, um, you know, recent years is the FAA have become um, pr pretty strict in terms of, you know, what cars now will, will be given papers. So effectively what they're saying is, um, you know, everything has to be as it was when it, when it left the factory. So if we're talking about um, the 73 RS, uh, RSR and 74, they, they, they fall under um, the, the same scrutineering pack. So effectively what you're delivering as a product to get inspected has to be exactly as it was when it left the factory in 73 or, you know, so yeah. it, it, so what that means for people who want to build RSRs, you know, go back 10 years, rewind the clock. You could, you could get papers on a 2.8 RSR on something that sort of looked quite like an RSR, but wasn't. So you could put some turbo stuff on it. You could put turbo brakes on it. You could put fiberglass wings on it. You, you know, it, as long as it looked right. Yeah, absolutely. 
not anymore. So now the the car, the, the body shell has to be produced in exactly the same manner as the original cars. All of the strengtheners have to be absolutely correct. You, you, you know, the, the braking systems on the car were incredibly, you know, they were probably most expensive of that era because they were running on the 917 braking systems. The steel short trailing arms, you know, everyone, which, which you know, were bespoke to those RSRs. Everyone was using the aluminium stuff that was put onto the turbos. Um, you can't do that anymore. It's, you know, you're using, you know, equivalent to what is um, replica RSR brakes and set up and, you know, your short trailing arms have got to be absolutely as they were in period. Every strengthener, every detail has to be as it was. They've become so strict now. It, it makes it an enormously expensive exercise to go down this route. And, and of course, if you're looking at, you know, oil tanks bespoke to RSRs, you know, kind of potato masher fuel, you know, oil field, you know, everything was sort of pretty much bespoke to those cars. Um, and so if you want to get the detail correct and you, you want to build it correct and get your papers, it's, it's, uh, it, it's an expensive journey. Um, I mean, they, they're claiming that they're doing it to, um, you know, just to sort of stamp out, you know, people sort of cheating or, I mean, I don't know what the real reason is, but it, it, I feel it just, it just stops a lot of people going into that world, you know, just because of the expense of it all. Yeah. Um, and I thought they'd be wanting to encourage more people to be doing this, not sort of discouraging people for the cost. And then you'll have the issues of people. And we've already, um, having people contacting us with original RSRs who, um, who, who actually ironically are having to reverse or asking us to reverse right, yeah. the, the car, the way those cars have ended up because they've all been evolved over time and things on them, I mean, you've almost got to prove if there is something on your car that's unique to your car and the factory You did need the it, photos, et cetera. Absolutely. So, you know, the one thing, and I don't know why this is a hang up for everybody, but everybody likes the <laughs> the rear strut mounts, you know, that, that they, they sort of bridge the rear suspension struts, go across the rear cross member. Everybody loves those. and um, But they weren't on RSRs when they left the factory. Right. So... Um, Trevor, who you did meet, and we've just, um, the RSR that we've just built has just gone across to um, BS Motorsport to have the engine and gearbox installed and get it on the rolling road and dyno it. Um, but Trevor was adamant he wanted those in. And I, and it's like, well, look, you know, you know, now is, it, you know, before we build it all, you, you, you know, we don't really want to put those in, Trevor. And, and then at the point where everything's in and the car's ready, the you know, it's inspected and they go, well, they weren't in on, yeah. unless you can prove they were in when it left the factory in 73, you know, you're not getting your papers. If we have to remove those, that that's like a major ball. Like we've got a engine out, we've got a the body. It's just an awkward yeah. thing to do. And so you've really got to be not only through that journey, um, really precise and accurate um, on what you're doing, but you, that, the customer's got to kind of accept that. And then you've got the FIA. Um, I mean, we use Jeff Moyes from the MSA. He's ex-Porsche and he's really good, Jeff. I mean, a fabulous guy who, you know, has been around Porsche for 20, 30 years and he races, you know, 9146 GT and speed and a speedster. And he, he's really helpful. And and it's a bit of a journey just to get down there, just to get your papers. Yeah. And um, and so the, the whole thing then becomes really expensive. And then you get to the end of it and you think, my God, I'm going to race this now because I've yeah. just spent so much money doing this properly. But, you know, it's again, it's... Um, and I guess, yeah, you do have to pick at the very beginning. If you're going to do it 
properly and you are going to restore the car and you're like, I only want this painted once and like, I don't want to cut stuff out again. It's like, well, am I going to do all the, am I tick every single box? Otherwise, like kind of what's the point? Like, absolutely. I mean, uh, you're absolutely right. And, and that car, and there was some decisions. And like, again, it's, it's financial decisions as well, because, um, you know, where do you cut costs on stuff like that? You know, you just, it's really, it's not an easy thing to say, well, I'm not doing that and I'm not doing that and I'm not going to buy that because it's all relative. And, and like most things on this journey that we find, you know, when you're buying stuff and you're, and you're putting, we don't, there's some stuff we can engineer and machine here, but some stuff we're buying in. But when you get all these things and try and fit them together, and you find <laughs> they don't all fit together. It's like, right, okay. So it just, you know, the whole thing evolves again and it's all cost related. But, um, but I suppose that particular car was difficult in the sense that, it, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a copy. You know, we built a car on a 73T and, um, and he wanted a, he, he started off wanting to go down the Brumos route, but, you know, we'd, um, but the Brumos route, there's been quite a few of the copies of the Brumos car built. And um, he borrowed the um, LaRousse ST. Um, I lent it um, to Trev for a weekend and he loved the livery. I mean, it was like, wow. Yeah, yeah, I love that one. And then he sort of went, oh, okay, um, wh why don't we go down this route of this uh, this Tour de France car, um, which was a... Uh, it, it was a, it was a, it was almost a Laria version of the psychedelic ST. Yeah. So the livery's very complicated, and 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 again, everything's a decision and a process. It's like, well, you know, we've got this beautiful body, we've spent all this money on it, and we've got all the body painted in yellow, and now we've got to go at putting all of these amazing sort of flames and getting the accurate livery on it. Um, and I said, well, I would do this in paint, as it would have been. So paint that livery on and then obviously the remaining decals just go over top of the paint it's but i think we went down the trevor wanted to go down the route of layering the decals on there um but by layering it you you get a build-up of decals on there and if and you obviously saw the deep the flames have got real they're real points on the edge of each of those flames with decals if you start trying to clean that you know all you're going to do is pull uh, that okay off. yeah yeah and there was no way of protecting it. So we, you know, obviously then we almost then had to think of an option to to go over the top of that to sort of protect it. Yeah, you then do all the decals and then PPF over the top. Exactly. So we did an Ingenco spray over it. And and so we, it doesn't quite look as as original as I'd liked it to, but it was, you know, that was- It's that working was, out. Yeah, yeah. Trevor wanted to go that route and I, and I get that. If I, wanted, if I want to peel everything off, I can and the yellow paint will be underneath. Yeah. And it's, but anyway, I mean, there's, there's, there's always, you're always challenged all the way through with decisions um, uh, that, that, that are trying to get the best look, managing the budget, the expectation and getting to the end of, of a journey, which is two or three years, maybe a bit longer than that. You know, it's, it's a long... Um, and I was talking to someone about this last week where you start a process. It, it could be a build, it might be a resto model or whatever, a build of a car and a buying journey. And in the time that you've gone through from start to finish, you are a different person at the end. And so... Trying to make the decisions at the beginning. What, skin? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. You significantly less money. Um, but, and I, and I guess a car like this is it's probably a bit easier than that because you go, I'm either making it accurate or not. 
in terms of like a hundred percent exact, then but you are a different person. Your usage for the car might be slightly different. Plans you had for it might have changed. You might want to like all these things move around this journey that happens in the build process, etc. With um so with these FIA papers and stuff, if you wanted to now take the the ST that's been continuously raced forever and race it at Le Mans Classic or something, would there be quite a lot of headaches because it's evolved so much or it's changed it's it's like existed in racing for so long? Or can you just go, would they make you pick a, a time, like a 70 whatever, and say you've got to put it back to that? Well, that the ST is um an easier car to sort of deal with. So, so what happens in, in like the cars that you've seen here today? So, you know, you know, if you look at 356s, they're relatively straightforward. So the early cars uh, don't need much doing to them. So up to 1960, pre-1960, you don't need a roll cage in it. You just need a handheld extinguisher. Um, you've just got to have a battery, battery cut off and yeah, just a couple of harnesses. Crash. Yeah, a couple of harnesses and that's it, job done. Um, but, but, Everything else has got to be original. So you've got to have it on your drum brakes and, you know, pretty much how it came out of factory. Then in 60, post 60 and that, that you're, you're having to introduce things like welded in roll cage and, you know, you've, you've just got a bit more stringent regs. Yeah. Um, not, not too disturbing for, um, they're not going to hit your pocket that much, but, you know, ultimately that their view is if, if it was available and on that car in period, you can do it now. Um, which even ironically means you don't necessarily have to go with, they used to insist that you had harnesses and race seats. No, you don't. You don't. You could just run on seats that are available in period. Okay. So that's like, um, you can run it on the Recaro. Yeah, absolutely. So, that's mental. But yeah, okay. Yeah. Well, you, I mean, you see these dudes in, um, you know, herring around Goodwood in, you know, this pre-war stuff. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. On the old Formula One cars and stuff. Yeah, they're just sitting um, about a mile higher than the, <laughs> there's no roll cage, nothing. No belt. Yeah, <laughs> it's, you know, that that always looks horribly scary to me. But uh, STs um, are a bit easier because ironically, when Porsche were, were, were building the ST, um, it was almost a sports purpose book that you could follow. So, you know, you could have steel wings, fiberglass wings. You could, there were variations on what you could have. And it was a bit of a mix and match car. So you, you're kind of a bit easier with things like STs um, because there is a, a less um, stringent guidebook. Get to the RSR and all the RSRs were the same. So, you know, that's a, and, and they're slightly more modern. So as, as you've seen with everything yeah. in history, the more modern it gets, the more stringent the rules are. Um, so the RSR was that weird one that um, at, at the back end of 73, that they, they grouped together the um, the RS, the RSR and the 74 um, RS all, all under the same class for homologation papers. So they all had to stick to the same rule books. So, um, but you know that, you know, so the ST is, is, is not so strict. So we, we currently have FIA papers on the ST. Due, I think they're due to run out in 2025. Um, it will be a straightforward task to to get them renewed on that car. So we won't have to do anything to it. Um, and that will be a good example of a car that's pretty much as it was when it came out. So you've had people questioning the, uh, the shape of the wheel arches on there, you know, and but they're probably the most original 
set of wheel arches you'll ever see. It's everything else isn't right. And yeah, that yeah. Is. No, no, so, no. These are right. Yeah, you're yeah. all wrong. All those thousands aren't correct. Yeah, but so that's what you're. Um, yeah. Nice. So, so yeah, I think I think in terms of that particular route that that Trevor chose to go down with the car is um was a very expensive route on that car, but uh, but but what he's ended up is with you know, is a, is a great product. Um, uh, and what are your options spending two to 3 million buying an RSR, um, w- which is an option. Yeah. And you know, that's a big spend on a, on, um, on a car. And I wouldn't say that this is, you know, this, this route, you know, picking a donor car now, you know, picking a good donor car, you're going to spend, you know, 60 grand, 60, 70 grand on a left-hand drive, yeah. 73 T I mean, you could spend significantly less, but you'll, you know, but if you find one that's really dead, you, you'll spend that extra money making the tub good, yeah. you know. By the time you put new floors in and done all that work, you might as well have started with a good tub in the first place. So, um, but but the engines and the gearboxes, all much more complex as well. You know, they were, um, uh, the, the gearboxes were running with second drill coolers. They're running with front oil cooler pipes you know that, that all the oil system is very different in an rsr and um, the braking system very different for everything it's yeah. just a bloody you know the rear quarter windows if you really want to do it accurately um you know the rear quarter windows that we were kind of unique to the rs lightweights the aluminium rolled um trims and the plexiglass quarter windows um I mean, if you could find some originals, which I doubt you can, they're going to be, I mean, even, you know, reproduction ones are four or 5,000 quid if you can buy right, some. Right, okay. So people aren't making them anymore. Well, I haven't seen many available. Yeah. So we we actually manufactured those ourselves. Okay. Took the screen mouldings, which they would have done in factory and actually shaped those. So um, so it depends how accurate on the detail you want to go as well. So you can get and, really... And if you want to, you can race that car now among, with a whole bunch of other stuff and... As we were, we were talking earlier, like it, it doesn't matter. We're talking about. Um, I was talking to Trevor about revival and this this two fifty GTO that was a replica that crashed, and everyone kept talking about it as if it was a seventy million pound car. And you're like, well, ig- ignoring that side of it, it's still like a possibly a million pound car. Like that's a really expensive car. If you prang that, it's a really big bill. If you're playing a 350 grand car, this is a really big, that's an expensive car to go racing with. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, like I suppose these guys are really, they've got enough money behind themselves to build copies of these cars. They are just so horribly rare now to, to put in some of these races. And and you've seen the racing at Revival. It's, it's, you know, it's quite intense. It is. And, um, more and more you're seeing so many of these cars ending up in the tire walls. It's it's a bit demolition derby sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> Gosh, I wouldn't really want to be putting my um, you know, one of three never crashed original. Yeah. I'd build a I'll spend a million pounds building a replica and so it's it, it, it like everything, it's horses for courses, and isn't it? In in some of those cars, the drivers are professional drivers, but there's also the gentleman driver, maybe the owner wants to race it and like they're not a professional lifelong career racing driver stuff. And Goodwood as a circuit, there's a lot of chance for coming off, scooting over some grass oh and going God. into something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you, yeah, I mean, I think it's really, um, yeah, you're in the spotlight as well, aren't you? I mean, 
<clears throat> there's no hiding place now, is there? No. Everyone's got a phone. Everybody's watching. Goodwood, absolutely, you're in the public eye. So you're going to be, um, yeah, you're going to be replayed a million times if you screw <laughs> yeah. up. And yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I always think about the hill climb at Festival of Speed and the people that invariably end up going through a bunch of hay bales. And you're like, <laughs> oh, that's just... The walk of shame. It's just like, that is literally in people's heads forever. And there's people in my head that I go, I remember that time that you put that specific car through all those hay bales. Yeah. Um, right, well, we've been um, narrowing on for quite a long time. So I feel like it's a good time to sort of start wrapping this up. We've got five questions that I ask all the guests. I, I actually have a list of six, so... But um, but there's there's five. Um, do you have a most memorable driving trip or journey? Yeah, I have to say, um, Targa Florio last year. Yeah, I, without a doubt. I think um, for, for a few reasons, um, it, it's one. Um, we got to the end of a like a really busy year, and we'd done three back to back events, and I don't I don't know quite what I was expecting from. Um, the, the event. I mean, obviously, yet you know, I, I, I've been aware of of the Tiger Florio for most of my life. It's been a race that's always, you know, kind of watching those cars herring round yeah. that island um, back in the seventies. I mean, spectacular. I mean, absolutely spectacular. And because it's never changed, I mean, Sicily looks pretty, and especially around the area of that track, hasn't changed that much. It, you really are um, going back and experiencing something that you know. You could just see what it would have been like in that yeah. in that amazing period up to the to, to the time that that. We, I mean, we know the reason the race stopped, but also taking um, the work that we've been doing on the on the book for the ST and taking it back there in its fiftieth anniversary of its class win. Um, yeah, was was really special. It was pretty cool. I, I was, yeah, I mean, I and. You know, the first day it was so hot there and we got up to the top of the mountain. It was a tough old gig and I really was nervous. I don't get nervous about much, but, and I wasn't driving the ST. Martin um, was was in it with his wife and I was with my wife, Debbie, and them. Um, and we had ended up just driving around Palermo and thinking, oh, this really seemed like a good idea till we got here. <laughs> and it was like, it was like... I, I've like nothing else I've seen. It was, I just thought this car that's never crashed in all of its race history is just going to get taken out by a bashed up Fiat Punto. It's chaos in Palermo. I, I've never seen anything like it. But so I was really nervous, not not for us, but for Martin. And, um, you know, he's driving a, and this is a works race car. And it, it's more of a, um, a, a suit, sort of two-day processional rally. It's, it's nothing, you can't put your foot down in it. So he's... When we'd sort of got out of Palermo and we got up into the mountains and we started going up and up and up and there was a point where we kind of got to the top and we saw the sea and we started coming back down and I, I thought the roads were, and the views and the driving was just just spectacular. And I think I, I have to say, I mean, I, I was going to say something glamorous about what's happening in the 70s and that, but that I think for me was was a real, yeah. I mean, a, a, a That's amazing, cool. yeah, an amazing event. That's, yeah. And, and having, yeah, well, as you say, all the history, all the time you've spent oh, yeah, researching yeah. the car, the photos, presumably you're, did you flag out some locations oh, and stuff? You're like, yeah. we've got to go to here. And we, we had, see that photo. Absolutely. We had the car in the same position as it was. Nice. Um, 
and the same graffiti was there from 50 wow. years ago. It was, it was brilliant. And, and because it was, um, yeah, because the car had so much Italian sort of history with it, they, they were so excited to have the car back there. So nice. yeah, that, the whole thing was just, was just Mega. wonderful. Yeah, it's cool. That's super cool. cool. Uh, if you could only drive one sports car for the rest of your life, what would it be? Oh, <laughs> oh, whoa. Okay. Um, blimey. I, one that I own or it could be anything, any, any. anything. Okay. Um, uh, um, uh, right. Okay. I'd go for, it'd be a 904. Have to be. Yeah. I mean, um, uh, you mentioned, you know, we spoke earlier, I think about Porsches and what we've had and what we've worked with. And I've, I had a couple of 904s in here and I, um, I should have bought one for 200 grand, which I didn't. And I, I placed a couple, but you know, I have to say I have all the cars. I just, I love the 904. I mean, I just think it was just the um, prettiest car that Porsche, I mean, I don't think, I mean, 911s are pretty in a, in a sort of a 911 way and, and, the, and the look really does grow on your 356s. I think are, Porsche built some really attractive cars and, um, and, and some of them look quite feminine as well, you know, kind of, um, but, but I think the 904, um, not only the styling on that car, but what that, how that car drives, um, just a brilliant pack, an easy, an easy car to drive quickly spectacular in terms of of its look um and, and that real moment in time where it was mm. just right at the end of that sort of four cam sort of six cylinder production i thought yeah it'd have to be a 904 nice know. nice what do you think is the most undervalued car at the moment i guess we sort of talked about this a little bit earlier yeah um i uh undervalued car at the moment um Oh God! That's, yeah, I would say, I I sort of think the three liter turbos for me. I think yeah. they're um, I think they're especially in right hand drive form. I think they're just not greatly understood. And I think, I think those first two years when they were homologated, you know, picking up a right hand drive. 3 liter turbo. Um, I think you get a lot with that. I think, I yeah. think you get a lot of car for your money. I think it was just uh, at the start of that real Porsche going big at the back end. Um, you know, the, the first sort of turbo production car. And then if you pick up a right-hand drive in really low production numbers, then, you know, I think that's, you know, that's, that's a rare old beastie. And, and numbers move around about that. You know, there was a there was a black. I think Ben mentioned there was a black seventy five car that, that found its way through um, an auction house in France. It didn't really, it didn't really, it just slid through and, and didn't make much yeah. more than a hundred thousand euros. And I thought that was steal of the century, really. I mean, gosh, a, a first year production right hand drive when they only built I don't know eighteen or nineteen right hand drives, um, yeah. full matching numbers, history, black. It's like whoa. And then there a later one made nearly 200,000 euros. And I thought, well, how's, you know, when they built tons of them and it was to fairly dull color. And, um, 
Yeah, yeah. And you look at what people are paying for the basic stuff around that time. Oh, absolutely. So, um, so yeah. Cool. Uh, most interesting car? Were you looking up, researching, go, oh, there's some interesting tech on that or, or anything okay. like that? Um, most interesting car. I, and I know it sounds a bit weird. I'm going right back. <clears throat> but I'd, I'd say we've got a 51 split window that I find really Mm. It, I find it more interesting because of of how they managed to produce that car <laughs> out of a little shed in Austria um, just after the war with no yeah. cash. I how beautifully is that car designed? Um, I'll, I'll take you down and, and, and let you have a look at it later. But what a spectacular shape! You know how did they build that back then? Um, so not full of tech, not complicated, but at the time would have been. You yeah. know, and and that's what I, I I sort of appreciate more in terms of um, that the the ability from a blank piece of paper and and you know just a pen uh, and just a sketch to be able to take that and turn it into something so beautiful that you know just yeah. still today you drive that down the road and it's just people just gasp when they see it yeah. and that. Yeah, that that's what I feel is, um, I, and I know what they've just built some amazing, you know, stuff since, and so incredibly well engineered. And but I think you know, I, I I just think about the moment in time and what the world was going through at that time. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Super cool. Right. Final question: Five car garage, unlimited value. It's got to fit into your life, sort of. You know, like you probably might have to. Have, you've got a car that you're using every day, type of situation as well. Yeah. In there. Uh, do they all have to be Porsches? No, 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 no. This <laughs> can be anything. Yeah, yeah, sure. Well, I'd go, um, I'd, I'd, it'd have to be, um, I'd have a 250 LM. That's always nice. my favourite. Yeah. Um, I'd go pr probably one of the um, Le Mans winning GT40s. You know, I think mm. it would have to be a long tail 917 would definitely be, um, would definitely be in there. Um, 904, and, you know, I'd probably go for a 993 GT2 as well. So that would nice. be, be my modern car. So that, yeah, that yeah, would yeah. be, you can see I've thought about this quite a bit. Yeah. Still absolutely to dream, you know, but that, that if I was given a, um, an unlimited budget. That yeah, there'd be a strong value on that garage. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I mean, I've... Um, that covers a lot of bases. <laughs> yeah. It's got everything, hasn't it, really? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think that would, that would be a good one. And um, yeah, 993 GT2 to, to all about it. Very cool. Right, well, thanks very much for coming on the podcast. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. I'm, I know we haven't spoken much about modern stuff, but... It's, ah, it's not. It's based on what you guys are into and dealing with. So so it's uh, yeah, it's been really interesting. Thanks very much. Thank you very much, Sam.